One of the more radical things we can do is actually root ourselves and really have a relationship with the people around us and the earth. This is the Get In My Garden podcast, episode 34. I'm Aaron Moskowitz, and today we meet Adrian Rosenberg, documentarian and Memphis native turned northern New Mexican. We learn about pollinator insects, creating a pollinator refuge on your land, no matter how small, some of the very interesting history of acequias, the agricultural waterways and the water rights system that the Spaniards brought to New Mexico several hundred years ago, and the sociocultural environment and history around managing these community water resources. Adrian understands the profound connection humans have always had to the land they live on, and how important this is for the continuity of knowledge and history. We met at a small coffee shop where peace and quiet can normally be found, but it was a very busy and noisy day when we got there. Anyways, I hope you enjoy our discussion. I was inspired to think and plan more for the pollinator insects when I work on my garden this year. Also, I left feeling more connected to the local farming community in New Mexico. My name is Adrian Rosenberg, and I have been farming for the past seven years. I recently closed my mushroom farm, but I'm still active in agrarian work. I work for the Sustainable Agricultural Science Center as a writer and editor. We're editing a book on the New Mexico acequias. It's a coupled nature, human, basically looking at how humans in nature are reliant upon one another through the acequia system. I'm also an audio documentarian. My work has worked with local knowledge and ecology, and specifically in my uh, valley of the Embudo, Embudo Valley. And I'm a pollinator lover, invertebrate lover. How did you get involved in bees? You know, I first had this affinity for them back in Denver, and um, I went to a couple of quick workshops. The weird thing is, one day I was walking around my neighborhood, and I had just refused a job back in Tennessee, and I was going to live on a farm and take care of someone's animals, and I was feeling pretty sad that I had passed up that opportunity, and I heard this violin music playing out of the window, and it was that, you know, the frantic bee violin music. Oh, awesome. Um, the, the flight of the bumblebee. The flight of the bumblebee, right. Which, bumblebees can be kind of slow <laughs> compared to other bees but anyway so I came out for a farm internship in Dixon they had bees and then I started taking courses from Les Crowder and Heather Harrell who are less is known in the beekeeping world as like the top bar beehive keeper guru and I, ha- I got hives and I've had hives ever since and really I've branched more and more into pollinators and native pollinators okay done a lot of work with that And you also do some research, right? Yes, (laughs) I do. Um, In pertaining to, I have so many projects that sometimes I have to touch back into which one. We can go to the other projects after you talk about the pollinators. Sure. Oh, okay. So research about pollinators, you mean? Yeah. And I'm just curious, can you just describe what pollinator is? And obviously we know a little bit about pollinators, but maybe we don't know the scope of what a pollinate, all the pollinators and how, can you just talk a little bit about how you're connected to that? Yeah. I think um, when people usually think of pollinators they think of a honeybee and the honeybee I think it's becoming more in our popular imagination it's kind of the poster child of pollinators because they're so connected to our food system and pollination but the honeybee is actually not native it's a non-native pollinator it's um they're mainly from Europe or the Russian area yes um or they think of Africanized uh, honeybees which are obviously from Africa but a native I'll go into native pollinators, which are the categories of bees, flies, wasps, butterflies, 
Beatles. Okay. And actually, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Beatles were the first pollinators back way back in the dinosaur times. Oh, interesting. So they're pollinating from the ground, or do they, I guess they fly also, right? Uh, Beetles? Yes. I think they would crawl up, but maybe they flew. I'm not sure. We'd have to take a time capsule back for me to know that answer. Um, But out of those, bees are actually, native bees are the most efficient, if you will, pollinators, because they have hairs on their bodies that collect the pollen. And so essentially, when they go from flower to flower, they're gathering nectar and pollen. Then pollen is for their offspring and the nectar is for them. And so they have these hairs on them and some pollinators have baskets on their back legs and they dust themselves within the flower and then go to another flower. And that's how they pollinate between the flowers since the flowers can't actually move. So it's this sort of, um, I think of it as very erotic. A lot of nature is. (laughs) It is, yeah. (laughs) It is. And us within that larger scope of our vegetables, our ornamentals, our native plants are all pollinated by pollinators. And by the way, I mentioned only the insect pollinators. There's also bats. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah, we can broaden that. But we'll we'll stick with bees because that's really what I've Mm -hmm. been focusing on with my work. And so what's going on currently with climate change and disease and the impact of pesticides, fungicides, the breakup of a contiguous landscape, pollinators are actually having a, a really detrimental time. And there's an article that came out recently that I encourage people to uh, read, which is, I think it's called The Bug Apocalypse. It was in the New York Times a few weeks ago. Did you read that? I saw somebody talk about it on Facebook. Uh-huh. And I started to read into it, and then I saw someone saying that when you drive across the United States, bugs don't barely hit your windshield anymore. Yeah. And then I felt a sense of panic. Yeah, a panic and a pain, like a deep pain, at least for me. That's what I feel. These incredible creatures are are dying. You know, along with that, of course, the repercussions are that it's harder for us. How do I say this? Our plants won't be pollinated. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We could hand pollinate them, but that is an incredible amount of energy and time. And we don't even understand always why something functions the way it does. It's larger than what maybe the human eye can perceive or the human intelligence. And I just don't think that we can replace that. I think there are always people who think that they can control and manipulate things to the outcome that they want and they may be able to in the short term but it gets more and more difficult as time passes and I don't think that we have the ability to do as good of a job as if we were to just work directly with nature. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes we think we can solve our way out of a box but we're creating a lot of the box and (laughs) the old Indiana Jones where the box is closing in, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The forces. So with that said, right now the current state of native pollinators bees particular, what we're seeing is that a lot of the native plants aren't getting the attention from these pollinators because, of course, there's all these effects that we're, we're going through as a planet. So what I'm looking to do with research, I'll give you a little background. I, I built a pollinator garden outside of our community library. I was fortunate enough to be supported by the Embudo Valley Library and the staff and got a grant through Fish and Wildlife. They were incredibly supportive and we worked together and built this garden that's supposed to be like a refuge site. It's kind of a demonstration site. And my my work with farming and audio has always been connected to water and the sakia, as you know, being in um, yes. a desert area. Mm-hmm. And I'm particularly interested right now in how water rights, how we, so how much do I need to explain to your <laughs> listeners about a and water?
water rights? Uh, well, I think that a lot of people don't ever think about water because probably a lot of listeners are in places that don't think about the water. You know, it's just they're by a river maybe, or I mean, here in the desert, we literally, everything revolves around that piece of land is worthless without water. Exactly. It is. So I guess you could go into it a little bit. Okay. I think some people who are local will understand that the history of acequias and the Spanish and all that. Right. You know, the saying water is life is something that people have felt for a long, long, long time. Here in New Mexico, we literally survive by our watersheds. I think that's true throughout the world. It's just that we've been able to surpass the realities through fossil fuel or whatever Mm -hmm. in order to have water imported or diverted. But in New Mexico, you really feel it. And so traditionally, communities communities have been set up along the riparian areas or the watershed areas. And so people are very aware of where their water comes from and how the climate impacts the watershed. There were Pueblo people and other native people here a long time before the Spanish, and they had water systems set up, but it was a little more individualized. And then when the Spanish came and colonized this area, they set up the acequia system, and that system was legitimized, so legally it is a system in which people have rights to the water. And the acequia itself is a ditch. People on the ditch are also known as the acequia. So it's the ditch plus the community on the ditch. Mm-hmm. And along with that is, of course, this powerful feeling of place and home and responsibility. And people call that carencia here. What is it called? Carencia. Carencia. Have you ever heard that? I haven't heard that. Okay. It's an old term that's coming back. If you ever read late and great historian Esteban Arellano, he actually lived in Embudo. Oh, um, cool which is right near Dixon. He was a great activist and thinker. He wrote several books. He's a historian, and so you can read up on that if anyone wants to know way more than I could ever know or describe about rights and people's attachment to it. Because I'm, you know, I'm from Memphis, like I said, and so I've Uh lived here. But certainly my heart's tapped into it. But now, again, with our changing climate and what's going on in terms of population trends and where water is being diverted to, and there's this real sense of can, can we survive? on these water shed systems because people feed their land off of it and if that water is diverted the land goes fallow and not only that the sakias replenish the aquifers they really hold up the riparian area also known as the bosque mm-hmm. and the life that's there and there's social cultural impact i mean it's a huge thing there's a whole web and if you're ever curious i work for the sustainable agricultural science center in alcalde that's an, an msu science center and there's a book that we're coming out with in probably this fall, we'll hope. <laughs> but it was a five-year ex- study done where interdisciplinary, inter-institutional, that looked at the sociological, the ecological, the biological, the, the ecological effects and, and purposes of this acequia. It's this ingenious system. So what am I getting at? People's water rights are a bit in peril right now. The acequia systems are extremely robust and resilient, but there's ways in which you can lose your water rights. And once you do that, the actual flow along with several other repercussions happen, but the flow of the water is lost. And that means people all along your ditch that share that water also can lose their their water, the physical water, not just the rights. Oh, so what would make the rights go away? So if we're just talking about the legal component of it, because I know that people have to maintain their ditches, right? The communities have to get together and there's certain things they have to do, but they might only get those on certain days of the week, depending on their neighborhood. Don't really know how it works. You know, every... 
It's like, are you familiar with the word landrace? Landrace? Seeds, yeah, landrace. I don't think so. Every ditch has its own culture and its own laws, particular uh-huh. to it. Most of them have um, similarities. But what can put someone's uh, pr- their water rights in peril are, number one, the snowpack not being there because of our now um, changing climate. Number two, if, if someone doesn't use their water for, quote, beneficial use, it's just how it's codified, then they can lose it. So there's the state engineer can go in and look and see if someone from past photos have been actually using their water appropriately. Interesting. So it really is, it comes from the state. It comes from the state. State, although there's separate, I want to be sure that uh, I don't misspeak here, but I think that uh, they're actually separate entities. Like on, a, on an acequia, you have a mayordomo, you have the commissionares. They make the decisions along with the parcientes. And those, wow. Yeah. So they're actually. So for everybody who's listening, I mean, that's amazing because it's yeah. here, we're in the United States, yeah. but we're going on this old system almost of from Spain, right? Exactly. And it's actually from the Moors before that. And there's been, again, Juan Esteban Arellano worried about how these systems were set up all over the world, Yemen, South America, Central America. And so, yeah, it's the last commons, a lot of people say, because it's the way in which people are governing their, if you want to say, resource for their own benefit. It's like a lot of the other commons, it's in it's in peril. So there's there's more um, reasons that Asekias can lose their rights. I'm just going to list those because my okay. work ties into, with pollinators, I'm, I'm curious to see and We'll see. It's a it's a research project that I'm proposing. We'll see if it actually comes through. But if, if one can actually plant out fallow fields with wildflowers that are beneficial to the pollinators, and that can be considered beneficial use of the water. And these, these wildflowers would serve as a cover crop. They would serve as, of course, fodder and refuge for the pollinators. And they also serve as, you know, they're, they're low maintenance. So the water usage would be lower. And this year, unfortunately, in Embudo, our, well, with the Embudo River, our water started drying. It, it pretty much dried up the river. Wow. Yeah. We were on extreme. They were talking about repartimentio, which um, is the allocation sharing of water, which ditches do... Uh, the whole system can be very complicated, and I don't know because I've not actually served on a ditch itself or on any of the commissionaries and not a Mayordomo, but it, it's been a really tough <laughs> past few years is what my understanding very, is. very, very dry. Dry. So, yes. I mean, it just sounds like if there are too many years like that, it literally could end everything because if it completely dries up, it ruins your land. Yeah, so, that's right. That's, so that's right. one of the big risks. Right. right, and then as far as so, if you were to plant up a piece of land, and it's is it still a question whether you can do that with native wildflowers, and if that qualifies, or is that just accepted as an okay use of your land? You know, that's my question, and I think what I I wrote an article and I asked it was for the New Mexico Acequia Association, which is a wonderful organization that works for the people on behalf of the acequias, on behalf of the people. I asked their lawyer, you know, could this be considered this idea? beneficial use and he said yeah I think so and it has to be seen as a beneficial use by people and so that seems like maybe there's a little ab- 
advocacy work that goes mm-hmm. along with it. But yeah, the, the the things that we face in New Mexico uh, as across the United States, as I'm sure you know, Aaron, is that we have an aging farming population and it's hard to step into those shoes yes. quick enough and um, actually have the support system, which I don't think people realize how in New Mexico it's been such a familial and community oriented farming practice that now that if things have been in a lot of ways, the fabrics have been torn, that it's a little harder for people to step in and mm-hmm. it's harder for people to uh, perhaps um, use their land because they're aging or because, uh, you know, they don't have the ability or maybe their family doesn't run a return. Whatever or the economics be. of it just don't work anymore. Exactly. Yes. And so much of it was subsistence. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to point out, not only with the people move off their land, the knowledge is lost and there's so much knowledge on how to use an acequia system that people, these the folks who have been working them for generations and generations have built up and it's just it's incredible. And so, you know... From a landscaping perspective, what we can do, we it's all a learning process still. There was zero escaping and then people realized that maybe that affects temperatures a lot and it's not good in all climates, right? Like in Arizona, for instance, the idea of zero escaping is kind of, they're not doing it as much because it actually creates so much heat around your house. Interesting, yeah, because so, you have bare soil. Yeah, and or not bare the rocks soil, but just rocks. store heat. So right. uh, I wonder if you have family land or something and it's on an acequia, what if you, they did really strategic planting of it in crops that they don't have to harvest, like you said, with wildflowers? maybe grasses. I don't know, are, are beneficial insects involved with grasses? There is some habitat within grasses and Pithy cleaning out the pollinator garden a couple years ago, just doing a cut down and there's, you know, mullen. Mm-hmm. From Asia? I guess so. I don't know. Is it from Asia? It is, okay. from what I understand. <laughs> the backpacker's toilet paper. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's a great herbal plant and yeah. it thrives here, but I think it's from a similar climate in Eurasia. Interesting. Yeah, it's an expector, expector right that's the word where it's like it yeah, comes out it makes the plum. You cough. Yeah. <laughs> the the pithy uh rootstock or um flowering stock that it sends up uh-huh. i've noticed that there's uh and it's not a grass but what i'm getting at is the pithier plants the insects that are a lot of the pollinators are either ground or they they go into like what, what's the word i'm looking for like logs and adobe walls and so they're they'll seek out some of them actually can chew their way into the pithy stalks and create their nest there and some of them inhabit other places that already have holes so Mm -hmm. I need to look back up again because I want to say it's butterflies that are more into the grasses but they also are considered part of like a pollinator refuge how cool so can you describe your pollinator uh, garden and just really you can just give an overview of it for people because I think everybody who has a piece of land they should include a section for just the pollinators sure a great resource first of all for people is the Xerces Society they're the invertebrate society they're awesome and so they put out a book about um, inviting pollinators to your farm. The space itself is right off the Acequia del Llano in Dixon behind the um, Embuda Valley Library. It's basically, it's not a very big piece of land, but before it was really, people had planted back there crops just like their own personal gardens, um, but it was really overtaken by weeds when I got there. So we chopped down the weeds, tilled and fur- furrowed it, and then uh, basically I just kept watering and weeding. And then I planted wildflowers for Plants of the Southwest, which is an amazing resource in um, Santa Fe and Albuquerque, not only for native pollinator seeds, but just native plants and knowledge in general. And she's very much an activist, the woman that owns it. Basically, it's planted in a variety of flowers that you can find in the high plains and the 
the high desert and it has an old apple tree on it with the best apples <laughs> I think in the valley that's awesome and that's yeah. a valley known for apples and there's some so there's the field in the middle and on the outside and an L shape is some perennials so um, your currants which people might not know but that is a wildlife plant um, and a pollinator plant silverberries I basically water it when we have water and maintain it and it's actually an incredible seed bank and that's something that I could see coming from say people using their fields as a pollinator mm, it's like a great spot to collect seeds yeah and my understanding which is very limited with seed collection is that seeds can be pretty particular they're pretty like localized in some ways with oh their absolutely traits. you might know more about that well I, I haven't read about it I've heard about it people have come on the podcast have talked about the fact that one year of certain conditions will basically code those seeds so that they have a specific, certain quality to them so if it's a drought year but a certain batch survives then i mean it's i guess it's a form of darwinism right yeah Right. then they might be, they might have a superpower. I think they do. They're way more sentient than we realize. But yeah, they, I think there's some like, if you want to be kind of mystical about it, there is a codified memory. If you want to be scientific, it's a genetic Absolutely. memory. But yeah, so the the seeds could serve as a seed bank. And I, I go back there often just to find own refuge for myself. And I'll find like cans or cigarette butts. And I'm glad to see it because it means people are actually hanging out back there. And kids come out and play. I see them. I've seen perhaps a bear has gone through. Cool. <laughs> and we also uh, built a little pollinator, uh, what they call a pollinator hotel, which is basically gathering different items that some of those, I still can't remember the name, but the pollinators that go into like um, sticks and pithy materials where they could inhabit. That's what a pollinator hotel is for. So you put in certain lengths of these materials and certain you could drill holes things like that so oh, cool yeah and I I just want to pay respect to the through the Carencia Foundation uh, or Carencia it's a nonprofit out of Albuquerque with takes high school students and they do community environmental projects I had a team that helped me build um, the garden they did a fantastic job and it was really cool to work that is so awesome that's a great example of some of the programs that I find in New Mexico there's just such a strong community vibe here compared to other places. I come from Seattle and people, there are different things happening and lots of knowledge being shared, but still there's this sense that everybody's out for themselves a little bit. Yeah. And I definitely in New Mexico have this sense that people are thinking much more generationally, much more about their communities, and it's pretty awesome. I agree, and I think, if I can just go back to it, I think it's really, it comes through, uh, and certainly the peoples that existed before the Asakia system, but I'm gonna start with the Asakia system, which is truly an interwoven web of people's relationships to one another and to the land, which is really to one another. It's, it's sort of a cross-cross over. I think that still permeates, even though we're seeing a time in which perhaps that's suffering some obstacles, but I feel very strongly in my community, which is intergenerational, there is that mm -hmm. care for one another and support. Well, even going back to before, I mean, in Pecos, it was the biggest, one of the largest or the largest Native American oh, city wow. in North America wow. at one point in about 1350. Yeah. And if anybody knows <laughs> the exact date, I'm so sorry that I've, if I've botched yeah. it. 
but they there were 40,000 people living in the valley and at that time everybody was dependent on each other this land is not the Pacific Northwest where you just go pick berries and throw your net in the water and catch a fish in five seconds it's and there's wood everywhere to take care of all your needs here everybody has to work together or they will die and that also is part of it. And probably the most pioneering Spaniards who made it out here, they had to definitely yeah, function like I, that. I mean, I think that we forget that there were communities like that throughout the U.S., or the, what we know as the U.S., that did depend on the land and one another, even in plentiful areas, because they realized there were certain boundaries to work within because they wanted to see it go forward. But yeah, I think that there's a sense, a very acute sense in this place, especially with, if anyone knows deeper of the this history of the Spanish coming into New Mexico, there were actually a lot of Jews that were escaping the Spanish Inquisition, Moors, Greeks, so they were already on kind of the outskirts And so I think that there was a carryover of that sort of sense of needing to rely on one another. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please leave positive reviews on iTunes if you like the show and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Email me directly at Aaron at getinmygarden.com or find me on Facebook if you have feedback or ideas for future episodes. Also, for those of you listening from New Mexico, the podcast supports the Healthy Soil Act HB 204 in the legislature right now which supports farmers and ranchers in voluntary soil health stewardship, offering education, technical assistance, and financial incentives. It will go to vote very soon, so please contact your legislator to remind them to vote yes on this bill.